Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2021, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com. Are you passionate about providing access to justice? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading plaintiff law firm, is looking for a digital campaigns and communications manager to join its public affairs team, learn from and work with a highly successful collaborative and skilled team in an engaging culture and supportive environment. Um, The role can be based in Brisbane or Melbourne. Excellent. Um, So you can uh, either surf or ski. Uh, to apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Be part of change and fight for fair. Apply now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that dives into the progressive campaigns and the issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. It was the 4th of July on Sunday, just gone in the United States, celebrating Independence Day and all things America. So we thought we would... Uh, get a friend of mine on, uh, who I've known for a number of years, but I've been meaning to get him on the show, um, Kwesi Chapin, who is, um, he's now a uh, political consultant, but he used to, was an organiser for um, Obama and then worked for the, the, the NOI uh, and then was the senior uh, political director for Colour of Change. Uh, he's now on his own, but I thought I'd get him on the show today just to talk about America, where it where it's been and where it's going, uh, particularly after the four years of, uh, Trump. So we're going to cover off a whole bunch of different um, issues that um, underpin American society, uh, including um, its democracy, uh, justice, uh, it, uh, employment, and uh, and healthcare. So that should be a good uh, topic to uh, do a bit of uh, reflection on um, with uh, Kwesi uh, this week. Uh, don't forget uh, to uh, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify. Uh, or Stitcher, and if you're an Apple Podcast user, please leave us a rating and give us a review. And don't forget to follow uh, Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn for all of the updates for um, upcoming episodes. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a glorious Wednesday morning, the 7th of July, uh, and uh, joining me from uh, Washington, D.C. is a good friend of mine who I've been meaning to get on the show for some time, and given that it was the 4th of July, long weekend, just gone, uh, I thought better here's a good opportunity just to unpack what is America and that is the former organiser for OFA, former senior political director for Colour of Change, and now has crossed to the dark side to set up his own campaign con- community organising consultancy because everyone's doing that these days. Kwesi Chapin, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me here. I, um, I thought you would be the best person to do this because I kind of wanted to almost do like a sort of an, like a, a community organiser 
post-campaign evaluation, but let's evaluate America of where it is at this moment in time because obviously the previous four years has been crazy. Um, I was actually, <laughs> I'm going to take a bit of time, but I was reminded of a tweet that I was just going, scrolling through my um, camera phone the other day and a tweet that came, I can't actually remember when it came out, but it was the, it was the, um, it was that tweet that was 2016, Trump won't win, 2017, President Trump can't do that, can he? President, uh, 2018, are you watching Hunger Games tonight? I hope my district wins. That came out, <laughs> I think that came out before Trump actually won. How, how predictive was that? <laughs> uh, it was pretty predictive. Uh, shout out to whoever made that tweet. <laughs> yeah. So I thought we could, uh, th- with that in mind, I thought that maybe we could just sort of unpack various aspects of American life through, through the lens of politics, but particularly through also looking at ways in which we can create change and, and lean on your experience as a community organiser. Maybe you can sort of shout out some of the good works that people are doing on the ground. But I thought we could talk about democracy. I thought we could talk about uh, the issue of healthcare in the United States, um, uh, the economy and employment, and by that I also mean jobs. And then maybe you've ran that off by talking a bit about justice and policing and gun violence since that was such a big issue over the summer 12 months ago. Um, but let, I wanted to start with democracy because I feel like all of the other problems can be fixed if you fix your democracy. And mm. President Obama's final address before he vacated the White House spoke about the critical need to protect the democracy of the United States. And that, that, that was where the next big battle was centered on. And then you fast forward to the 2020 elect presidential election. He was an oracle because I don't think any of us predicted how much democracy was going to be under threat. And I wonder if he's reflected on it and thought that it could have got this bad. But, you know, the very fabric upon which the United States has built, the, a liberal democracy, was very much under threat in the, in the months leading up to the election and then during the whole count process and then days before the inauguration, like it was, oh, we don't need to go over this, we've been this before, but it was insane. Um, my, my first question to you is, how did we get here to that point? Mm. This is this is such a good question. Um, so, uh, you know, on behalf of all Americans, let me tell you. <laughs> well, one of the things I will say um, is that Things wasn't just shaky in 2016, right? I will was go back to if you're looking at like voting rights situations, right? And this is like immigration issues, like SB 10, 1040 that was there, Arizona bill that was that was making it hard for it's like like wait, this is America? Like hold up, like it, you start seeing this, quite frankly from that Tea Party, um, the rise of Tea Party, because it was, was straight backlash of President Obama's presidency, right? Uh, being elected in 2008, and that sprouted up in 2009 when they pushed back on healthcare reform, and then all of a sudden, this is when you start seeing like voter ID laws start coming in, of like folks were pushing back at what they thought was, it wasn't my America, right? And so, when we saw in 2016 um, with Trump coming in, like 
you know, quite frankly, like a lot of black folks weren't that shocked to me. Like, like it was like, hmm. So we, we've seen bad movies before, right? Like we've had local, whether it's local or governors or whoever, like we've had politicians, quite frankly, fuck us over, right? And so now the a wider spread of America was getting fucked over by this president. And then, it, then that outrage became like, whoa, where's my democracy, right? With the Muslim ban and then, it was a bunch of stuff happening right away of like, I can't believe this happening. Well, you put the right people in power and you, you will see this all day, um, every day. Um, and so it really goes back to like, you, there were little incidents popping up in 2010 and 12 in, in the state and locally, and then it just screwed up, right? Um, in, in 2016, and then it became, right people got in office and, they ran shop um, of like shipping away democracy and had the um, privilege of, you know, um, being able to, uh, you know, I'm, how do I say this? There were folks who had privilege in America and thinking it could ne- never be that. And then in 2016, after the election, tears came to their face and they're like, oh shit. They're about to get fucked, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they continually got fucked for the uh, for those 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 four years. Black folks, quite frankly, in America, were like, "Ha, huh, welcome! <laughs> like we've been here. Like we said, we said, this is what that press feels like, right? Yeah. And this is only a little taste of what it looks like." Um, and so, yeah, democracy got screwed, and it, quite frankly, even with um, Biden in office, I think we'll get to this a little bit later on. It's still, in in my opinion, in dangerous territory. If you go back even further, obviously in the 1960s, off the, the hard work of the civil rights movement, you do have the, the Voting Rights Act, which um, was, was a, you know, is, a, is a landmark uh, piece of legislation. Yeah. Um, and then um, and I, I, I can't think of the 70s and 80s about what happened from the Republican side to unpick that, but certainly the Newt Gingrich, uh, when he came in and was Speaker of the House, and the Republican strategy to use existing gerrymander laws to slowly build political power at a lower government level, I felt felt like this was a long term long term strategy by the Republicans to undermine um, democracy. I mean that. That's going to take time to re-align if they started in the – well, I mean, what was that, the sort of the mid-90s, sort of towards the end of – when, when Newt was in power, um, right after, again, um, Clinton got in office 92, 94, that, that backlash year. Um, what was the – I forgot. Um, look it up later, but – they came in with like a, a pact for America and like really suited in with the evangelicals. Evangelicals came, came through, um, real heavy Christian fundamentalists really came, came to rise around that time. And then, uh, you know, there's sort of the there's obviously the the legislation that the For the People Act that um, they're trying to get through Congress, and obviously the filibuster is going to mean that it it, it won't. Um, I mean, that's that, that seems to be 
the first piece of legislative reform that we've seen come through um, your your national congress um, in a generation, and it's stalling, and it's stalling because of this arcane, anachronistic, parliamentary uh, uh, convention. Um, where are you on the filibuster? Because I, I only found out a couple of weeks ago when we had Sam Schneidman on that you don't actually have to filibuster. You just email the clerk to say... Nah, I'll, I'll um, put a hold on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're not going to talk about this on the floor. No. We're, like, no. It's, it's insane um, that, like, yes, I get it. When they, back in the day... And well, I mean, back in the day, I mean, like 1700s, right? <laughs> Where they thought this is a great idea, right? The filibuster. But what ends up happening is that, like Jim Crow, right? Sean uh, Thurman of people. That's the filibuster of like how it historically screwed over minorities in America. And quite frankly, screw the filibuster and everybody that rides with the filibuster, okay? Mm. Um, it is not a good use of taxpayers' dollars, you get me? Of like, all right, you get elected, right? Representative democracy, okay, great. So what, why even stop the conversation from happening on the, on the floor? Mm. They're afraid to take the vote, right? And then even on, especially if they don't have, like, what the people act, right? It was not going to get to 60, right? Quite frankly, did not, did not have enough votes to, to get there. But yet, it wouldn't even be available to... But if we had 51 or 50 folks coming in, that's all we needed. But the filibuster blocks that. And now, progress... And really, what was the real reason why it's real shitty, especially like we got this president elected on these ideals, right? And he can't get this passed. Because of a filibuster, a parliament procedure, right? One little rule is not like life or death. No, it's literally a filibuster, like as Sam has said previously. It gets an email, right? So now, gonna this is a threat of, of a filibuster, um, and then also it pits a like Joe Manchin. What the fuck, right? This guy gets all the power. This dude in West Virginia. Right, gets all the power and gets to really t- say to black folks and black and brown folks in Texas and Mississippi and these states that um, have passed terrible, terrible uh, voter ID laws, suppression laws, c- curbing down on like how black and brown folks vote. Um, just, just like that. Just like that, just because of this damn filibuster. It's ridiculous and it's going to impact Biden's presidency if it doesn't get rid of it. These compromises, like he wants to pull off, cool, but it's going to be some like hella watered out stuff that, quite frankly, people are going to be like, well, it's just more of the same shit I've seen before. <laughs> right? Yeah, and and that's the that's the thing that frustrates me the moment at the mo- at the most at this moment is because the foundations upon which you can create change are built on a equal liberal democracy in which your representatives in 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 various uh, state and national governments reflect the will of the people. And at yeah. this point in time, many of your, I mean, your Senate does not reflect 
the will of the people. The, you know, and I understand the checks and the balances between the two houses is the same as what we have here in Australia, right? Um, but you can't create change when it is, there's an imbalance built on a lie. And yeah. he, here is a moment... Here's a piece of legislation, and I'm sure that the 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 current um, act, the for the people act, probably doesn't even go far enough to try and fix some of these. But it's a start, right? And you yeah, can't even get you can't even get that through. Um, it's it just makes everything else that you want to do so much harder. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. And like, and let's be real here. Like this this is um, the Foreign People Act was supposed to solve for a, a voter fraud nonsense, right? And voter fraud, was, it statistically only happens like maybe 1% of the time or some, some, some nonsense like that. It's, we are doing crackdown laws, right, <laughs> to snuff out 1%. But quite frankly, it's a lot of mistrust that the American people have on both sides, right? And so media get, gets into this and then it's like conspiracy theories all damn day of like what's right, what's wrong. And so like for the people becomes a lightning rod issue. Um, for the people that becomes a lightning rod issues on both the Democrats and Republicans to to say what's 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 not, what's not. What's in it was good, what's in it as bad, and then it becomes very muddled in the uh, the political crossfire of like what's actually great about it, and then I, f- I feel quite frankly we, we our democracy suffers because of that, mm. right? Of like okay, we can't have honest conversations. I admire what the uh, the British Chamber is going to do. Just have it out, just cuss out, and like just go all in, right? Um, and then and then all right, after that bullshit is done, okay, great. Where, where can we find a real compromise? And, and find solutions. Um, and we're not finding solutions, especially around what am I said. Even Manchin's BS um, compromise he tried to do at the end before the people had to get it past the filibuster was not enough, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, you held up the filibuster to, to get Republicans on your side, right? And then they still said no. <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> like, did we did we not learn that experience from the first you know two or three years of the Obama administration? They just got the got completely stuffed around by the Republicans. It, but it wasn't the Republicans; it was Democrats back then in two thousand nine. Because <laughs> we had all three chambers. There wasn't no filibuster nonsense back then in two thousand nine. Good point. Yeah. It was literally. Democrats, right, um, saying that, oh, I'm so scared about, you know, going back to district and, and saying this and this and that. Quite frankly, it's a system where people worry about votes or the right people are pushing the buttons, special interest groups are pushing the buttons and say, no, that's going to be, that's going to hurt my bottom line. Mm. Um, and so the enablers around them allows uh, Joe Manchin and others in 2009. It was Joe Lee. It was Joe Lieberman, right? Like, what are we talking about, right? <laughs> We've seen this movie before. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's turn to actually. Now, one more question about that before we move on. Um, does this piece of legislation get up in a get up in the Senate in in the 1990s pre New Gingrich? That's a good question. Um, I, you know what? Yes, 
um, if conservative white Dems pushed it. Mm. At that point, you had, this is Joe, Joe Biden was still in the Senate. You had Clinton coming up there, right, of people who can get some type of compromise bills at that time before it got really too heated. Um, and Bill, at that time, in the early 90s, was a little bit of a, t- a Teflon, right, because, like, you can kind of get what he wants, and that smooth Southern charm made him a bit easier um, to, to make it happen. So I think it, it could have, but not it, not to this level um, where, where we're at right now in terms of, like, what we asked for and then for the people act. If uh, the legislative path um, fails, um, then, you know, let's go back to organizing. Mm-hmm. What work needs to be done on the ground? Uh, the problem is, is such a long-term problem. It's a long-term problem for a long-term solution. You need a long-term solution. So by me long-term, you got to primary some of these people. Um, so in particular, folks who were hesitant around this act, right, on the Democrat side, it's a, can you primary them and push them out and find someone that will? Um, quite, quite frankly, Joe, Joe Manchin calculated, I was like, oh, I wish you would, <laughs> right? And, and, he, and he's not going to have that problem. So it's primary. That's one way through elections of going after folks who did wrong in, in the upcoming mid- midterms. Another way, uh, you can, um, they already started doing this. The Biden administration has started suing some of the states with these terrible voter ID laws. So the Justice Department cannot ideally take it up to the Supreme Court. But organizing wise, I feel it's through elections. And then it's hard to get folks out on this one issue. Americans, much as folks think there's a lot of single issue voters, they're not. It's all complicated. Like they're hella complicated. So this one issue only quite frankly impacts minorities, right? And in, in cities. And they're already gonna max out their vote. Right. And so the folks where you really need impact will be in the suburbs and the rural areas who actually love the mail in voting and all the other stuff that came in from COVID um, and be able to get them on your side and to be able to have those conversations of like, hey, here's how this impacts you. Um, and quite frankly, I don't I don't see didn't see organizers do that or organize a campaign that went after that middle ground of like, okay, you got your base already on board and, and can make those connections. But can you explain the story of like, well, how does it affect Stacy in Iowa? Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Like this Stacy the home Stacy the homemaker in Iowa, right? Those are the folks, can you get her story? Of how this will impact her, yeah. right? And that's and that's where I felt that we were, were lacking. That's going to take some long term investment in order to make that conversation happen. Healthcare. Um, I. Uh, it's hard to not talk about healthcare without talking about COVID, but I do want to go back a little bit and reflect on yeah. um, the landmark victory that Obama and the Democratic Party got when they brought in the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as it's been titled 
And it feels like that victory's now been that was a long battle. It wasn't just it wasn't just the campaign to get the legislation through. It was then all the uh, the state based challenges that took it all the way up through the courts to the Supreme Court. Multiple challenges, and I feel like the Republicans have now put up the white flag and have come to accept its place in American society. Is that is that a fair assessment? I think that that's a very fair assessment. Um, Obama and the Obama White House made, I mean, this is America, Jack. And so if we get some entitlement, the fuck you mean you're going to take it away? <laughs> what? You give us a discount. You mean you going to take away the discount? No, this, that's not how this works in America. What you give it is us. <laughs> it's, it's hard to take back. And so, quite frankly, all the belly aching that happened in 2009 and 10 about, oh, it was a right you're, you're going to take away my plan, da, 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 da. and then people actually got on it, right? And you're like, oh, this is way better than what I had before, right? And once that assessment was made, you couldn't take it away, right? Because it wasn't just Democrats signing up for health care. It was Republicans, everybody who wanted access. And so um, it once, it, once you give an entitlement in, in America to American citizens, it's, it's impossible to take away. Mm. Um, and so much as they wanted to on the Supreme Court, they, they kept trying. But in fact, they didn't even make it that big of an issue in this last presidential election because they knew what it was, right? People were on it. So we're going to kick them off. We're going to make them pay even more. That's not going to happen, right? Once you've set a price... Um, is no way. So it's it, it was a smart political move for them. I mean, to lay off, but they should have done it even, even earlier. <laughs> they gave it the funk and what's the past, but you know, for the show. <laughs> yeah. So you've got this foundation now. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a, it's not perfect by any stretch of imagination. Certainly, if you compare it to um, you know universal health systems like here in Australia and Canada and, and Britain, and actually, wait a minute, everywhere. Every, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let me list all of the countries of the world. Um, uh, but it is a foundation and it, 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 on good foundations, you need to build a house. Where, where do you start now? What do, what, what, what needs to happen? And I don't think you can, correct me if I'm wrong here, Kwasi, but I don't think you can answer this question without actually looking at what has happened because of COVID and the impact it's had on minorities. This is a hundred century like, um, and what's still happening to black folks um, and minorities with, with this COVID. Uh, with ACA, in fact, I am also, I, have, I signed up for ACA for the very first time this year, right? And I went through the process and it was like, oh, it is not that bad. I mean, obviously it was in 2010 when the shit hit the fan, right? When it first wrote out, but they improved the system where, yes, I can go in, pay, pay some money, and I have access for healthcare every month. Um, but that does not solve the bigger problem that we, we saw that COVID exposed, that these health disparities in black and brown communities, in particular in America, right? One, we don't get as much prevention, right, in treatment. And so, Stuff like diabetes and other issues, high blood pressure, overweight, overweightness, being overweight, obese, all that kind of came in and got really exposed with COVID because COVID literally preyed on on those like health disparities that Black and Brown folks 
have at a higher risk because we have poor access to healthcare. So it's like a cycle. Of like, okay, you got poor access to healthcare. Boom, we get this whole ass disease. We're wiping folks out. I, I'll never forget um, when it when it first hit. People in my community on Twitter were making jokes about, oh, it's a myth, da da da. And then it hit black folks right when the NBA shut down. When the NBA shut down in 2020, that's when black folks realized, oh shit, this is something different. <laughs> and and this is when we had to go, go indoors, pandemic. And then I remember old uh, white colleagues and I had black, my black colleagues were going through it, whether they themselves passed away or family members were being directly impacted by COVID and whether they caught COVID and passed away, they, they felt it right, right away because someone in their family was experiencing it. So my family experienced that. And so it, it um, exposed, um, yes, you may have ACA, but that is not helping the, the bigger issues of health community access and access to good doctors and tr- treatment facilities where we won't be so susceptible to COVID and other pan- pandemic issues. And so the only solution I feel like right next is we do need to move to the U.S. healthcare system. It's, it's, it's only right if you want to, I can say, well, it be maybe as a part of reparations or something like that, right? I can, if I wanted to make that connection. But one of the things that is critical is that in, the, in this pandemic, I suppose, if one community is hurt, and right now we are um, Black folks, in particular poor Black folks, are not as vaccinated as much as compared to other communities in America. And that's coming to fruition again with this whole ass Delta variant. I know y'all are catching hell and I'll show you right now, right? And but I can imagine when it when it gets here and bigger drugs is gonna hit like wildfire and again black folks will be impacted again. There's one education not education, more of like access and um I wanna say it's a cultural problem where it needs to be educated around like, okay, here's what the vaccine will be helpful and here's where it won't be helpful um, in order to prevent that. But then again, also like the issues that why COVID takes us on even harder, like that needs to be addressed. I felt like this COVID stuff really exposed like, oh damn, all these black people are dying and you know, Trump being in office didn't help at that time of uh, how do we fix these problems long-term not just during a damn pandemic. Uh, two things I want to pick up there. The first one is um, I only took COVID seriously when the NBA season shut down as well. I don't know what that says about me. Um, I'll, let you be, I'll let you be the judge of that. Uh, the second thing is, well, uh, some pieces I've been reading over the last couple of months, which I didn't even realise, the distrust amongst people of colour towards the health profession uh boiling down to you know um you know an old black man who isn't unwell just won't bother going to the hospital because he doesn't trust the doctors down there and that is a lack of there's a lack of diversity amongst health professionals as well um and they were holding up the model example of one or two hospitals where the you know the staff are um you know black doctors but this is a rarity um so there's even 
this comes into sort of this brings in education, doesn't it? In terms of how many people, how many young African American men and women are we getting into colleges to get degrees to go then work in, to get then not even do that, but then just get jobs working in major hospitals to then you know. Yes. It's, it's systemic. And then even if you do go to a black hospital, quite frankly, here in America, the, you know, you go to a majority of black hospitals, like, oh, you may be getting worse treatment than you would if you go to the, you know, the other side of the tracks treatment. And then if you do go to that other side of the tracks where the, the white communities, your pain may get ignored because you have, guess what? Doctors may be biased too because they're humans. And so there's a, a by you might get a kind of bias doctor. And that what ripples and effects like damn I don't trust I don't want to go to the doctor. That old black man who had that experience of a doctor dismissing them their pain or not he- hearing them. You know what? Why would they? Yeah. They were disrespected before. <laughs> and it gets passed down from, from generation to generation. It sets this norm amongst the community that like yes. you know, don't bother doing that. You know. Yeah. Um, what, what's the way forward uh, in healthcare then to try and address some well, of these systemic issues? It's one, like, I'm thinking of like what DC is doing in, in Prisoners County, the area where I live in now, which is predominantly black, black folks. They're putting more services in our community, right? In terms of like, there's, if you're talking about vaccines, there's more like vaccine centers happening, but like, it needs to be more long-term. Like, what it, you can't just have hospitals. Hospitals are for emergencies. What are you? What are we doing for more prevention? Right? Clinics. Right? We're set up investing in the healthcare system in communities so that they, they can build a relationship with their doctor. They need like that's that's literally as a as an organizer. Right. One of the things that you, in order to get over that hump is that one, how are you building relationships? How is that doctor building relationships with that community that, that, that they're serving? Just like a police officer. Are they living in that neighborhood? Right. Are they from that neighborhood? Right. Because that goes a long way in order to like build trust. And what and what we have here is in particular in minority communities is like it's a lack of trust. Right. And like, so if there's a lack of trust, how do we, what, what are we doing around that? And that starts with like having more, um, just like doing a school, right? One teacher to 15, so like you want more doctors from that community to be able to serve. And so that means having more access. So that way they're not waiting till they need to go to the ER, right? Okay. What does it look like? Clinics, right? Putting in services, nurses, from that community, giving out those education grants to like um, STEM STEM scholarships for folks to encourage people in that community to take on that field. Um, it's small things that could be done as we speak right now, but you know, politics. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't answer every every question with, uh, you know, but politics. Um, <laughs> Let's uh, let's turn to the economy and um, and broadly speaking, employment. And by virtue of that, I mean jobs. Yeah. Um, the perception of workers and working in the United States from an outsider is that you guys get paid peanuts, that you don't have any holidays, um, and the whole work experience really is 
is a challenge for whether you're a, um, you know you have a family or if you're living on your own, uh, and 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 indeed at acute moments throughout the economic cycle, sometimes it's really really hard to get a job. Um, I remember sitting in a bar in Cambridge, Massachusetts one night talking to a guy who literally had just finished his degree at MIT. He was having a beer. And I said, what are you doing now? And he said, I'm working at a Walgreens around the corner because I can't get work. He studied at MIT. Like, yep. <laughs> he should, he's probably the smartest person on this planet. Um, <laughs> um, now, that was to be fair, that was 2012. So it wasn't that long after the GFC. So I know the American economy was in a bit of a shit then. But anyway... So, it, what is the what is the experience right now? Do you think? And I know that it changes from from period to period. But talk to me about sort of give us a, give us a holistic kind of look at the American economy as it is right now. That's pretty right. It's still kind of screwy. Uh, it's one these pan America has rushed back open to open up because of that whole thing, the economy and jobs that like trying to jumpstart it, right? Uh, more retail service people, you know, get get America back working, that, that type of deal. But it was screwed before the pandemic, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, it just got exposed even more. Um, in terms of particular impacting, again, black and brown folks, particularly black folks have been screwed over even more because um, they had some of the realtor jobs, those lower-end jobs that got that could quickly wiped away. And then the... The thing about these jobs reports, okay, great. People may be getting hired, but they're getting hired, like you said, for peanuts, right? So they're underpaid, right? And they, and they may be getting that 39 hours, uh, you know, on their paycheck, and that cuts them off from being, being eligible to get benefits and all the other stuff. And so where does that go, right? Oh, don't have access to pay for a doctor. Oh, I wonder what builds up from there, right? So it's a systemic cycle that happens and um so the jobs happening right now it's lower paid jobs like this is relevant towards i don't know if you've been keeping up with trying to unionize amazon uh here in the states it uh did it down south which tried to but it failed right of like trying to get better paying jobs more sustainable jobs um for folks and for me but again they're these companies and they have, uh, they don't care too much about the work <laughs> uh, as much because they feel that it can be repla- replaceable as, as needed. I, um, I certainly don't, the Australian system was built on, um, on the premise that there should be an independent umpire that would arbitrate between employers and employees. And this mm. was, a, this is a foundation of the Australian Federation. Um, and, even that, uh, and I probably need to do another podcast on this actually to get someone from one of the unions on to talk about it because I think that the folks in the union movement here in Australia right now are sort of going, well, even there we don't think that the independent umpire is that independent anymore or it's not mm. ruling in favour of working people um, as consistently as maybe it did a long time ago. And I know that there, that's not a pillar of the US industrial relations system and it's very much always been based on bargaining um, and if you're – and correct me here if I'm wrong, uh, Kwesi, but if you're in a union job, then you are by and large going to be better off. You're going to have healthcare benefits. You're going to get a decent wage, access to the sick leave, all those kind of things. Um, 
So that's that's great for those folks, but obviously there's still more wins to have there, right? That's not that, that's mm-hmm. that's not Nirvana for those workers either. But certainly for the folks that aren't organised, then that's this is what you're talking about. This experience, it's so difficult in the United States to get organised in in workplaces, and some of the, the you know like you, you talked about the Amazon campaign just recently, and just incidentally to our listeners, we're going to have someone from the re, the retail union in the United States on the show in early August to talk about that campaign in particular. But just talk to us about the challenges that, ha- that, that are on the ground for, for labour unions trying to organise workers to improve, just to get basic, you know, things like minimum wage. I mean, minimum wage, was, we'll start off with um, the Fight for 15 campaign. So the Fight for 15 campaign really came from fast food workers, um, fast food workers saying like, hey, can I at least get $15 an hour for the work I do, right? The, the amount of labor of this billion dollar company, right? <laughs> of what does that, that look like in terms of like chipping it down? Um, and that's where it started. And really, even then, uh, getting those wheelchair workers and service workers uh, a fair minimum wage, 15 bucks an hour is shit. Yeah, no. Right? It's not that much, but it's still an uphill battle just for that because companies have interest and they always hit you, well, what about my bottom line? Or what about, oh, service? It's like, wait, this, this happens in other countries. Other people have a better living wage. What's what's the hold up? And then you get then you get to the the, the one of the major holes is that companies have a best interest in not seeing that happen and will do anything they can to stop that, right? Because it, it impacts their their bottom line. And so you will have like with um, with Amazon and others, like you have companies that will actively organize against organizers. So it isn't like oh we're just delaying out. No, they're you're pinning some money behind these campaigns or and so it really becomes people power versus money power and um this is america and so money's gonna win uh for the, for the most part until there's a tip over of when people just get fed up around this and so the organizing efforts around labor whether it's um this is not just in private companies this is also in um Nonprofits, you see this, right? Of uh, it being extremely hard of one finding folks who are, who are fed up enough in that workplace to say, "All right, I'm ready to buck at the boss," essentially, right? Or say, "I've had I had enough," <laughs> right? And then finding others who agree with you, and all of a sudden, it's incentive like what hovers over you, you can be fired and lose your livelihood. At any moment, if they even get caught, um, particularly uh, especially in workplaces where they try to stomp down. So that's your your Walmart's right, big employers. These communities. Let's let's look at Walmart for instance. In rural Arkansas, right, in rural Arkansas, where Walmart will be the biggest employer in your town. Ain't no pushback in that <laughs> because if you mess up at that Walmart, guess what? The McDonald's is not going to hire you. Right, because it's, it's such a big impact small town economy. So it's not just like the big cities we're talking about. We're also looking at rural places where the these big box stores and these other uh, non-use shops would impact an economy, a local place. So the stakes become very high, 
and there are other people with special interests. Um, sometimes government officials who want to make sure that that doesn't happen as well, because they may have a uh, an investment in that and see, make sure that company is profitable. Or, quite frankly, that company may pay for their campaign, right? For their can, um, and they they are invested in staying quiet around those labor issues. And so there's a lot of folks against in America against the worker. And so it really becomes just a worker and themselves like in order to eke, eke something out and they're eking things out. Um, we can go into my analysis of the American labor movement, <laughs> labor, labor, like quite frankly, um, long story short, they, they got us to, they got us a weekend and labor day. Right. Uh, and then the community asked Americans pretty much forgot about the unions after that, right? And now we're just like, oh, every man for themselves t- t- type of uh, ethic right now. Uh, I think that's the experience here as well. I mean, there's been a lot. I feel for the union movement in in um, in a lot of their. I use the word marketing. I don't mean that term, but they they're constantly. And I felt this when I was a union organizer, trying to reaffirm to members and to workers, hey. It was unions that got us, you know, uh, our weekends. It was unions that got us a minimum rate of pay. It was unions that got us superannuation. It was unions that got us um, annual, annual, four weeks annual leave. It was unions that got, you know. Um, but when you do say that, it, it's glazed eyes from from people. The sort of, well, you know, whatever. And I, I think that the language as well of um, it's when we say it's unions, I. I I was only later in my career I started to realize, oh, hang on a minute, well, uh, they see me as the union. I don't want you to see me as the union. Yeah, I'm wearing a union polo or whatever and I'm rocking up on this side, but it's actually you guys are the union. Right. Uh, I just work for you. Uh, it's your it's your membership fees that pay my wages for me, me to come in and help organize you guys. So you're the union. And some workplaces, when you built relationships with those workers, they eventually went, oh, I right, get this now. All right, we, we understand our power. Right, well, okay let's work together and how we can strategize to try and, you know, for our next EBA negotiation or whatever. But some of the bigger ones, it's like, I don't, I don't, you're talking to me in a foreign language, Stephen. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I literally just come to work here once I'm working part time. I want to, I'm going to university. I don't give a shit about this job. Shut up, get out of my way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty much what it is. And also quite frankly, um, unions here for a period only worried about their own issues. Right, they mo- recently started caring a lot more about um, racial justice issues and starting like weighing in on other issues. So, like, they're becoming more relevant outside of just the, of labor issues, um, and that's going to hopefully impact um, households. But I don't know; it's it's an uphill battle of like one really getting into. For workers here, like, what does it mean for people power? And like, what does that look like? What does that dream about? I think people haven't seen the dream yet. Um, they, it's always a we're trying to protect something, but damn, what does it look like to to get a dream going? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's part of the the issue, big picture wise. I see with the the union movement here. Um, one last question on that before we move on to uh, the, the final topic of today's uh, podcast. Uh, very sneaky of the Republican Party. I mean, the hypocrisy is just dripping, mm-hmm. but they are talking working man's language uh, and are really appealing to that 
that base vote, particularly amongst white males, um, who would probably have union jobs, but at the same time, uh, and yeah. and really, and also verbally, uh, sort of getting stuck into the big corporate big corporations that are seen to be socially progressive. Mm. But at the same time, and this is complex in some ways because at the same time, you know, they're getting stuck into like a you know, like Jeff Bezos for whatever reason. But at the same time, there is a shared interest between the Republican Party and Amazon in screwing over workers. And they are do- doing that behind the scenes, you know. That's happening in the dark, smoke-filled rooms. But out front, they're looking like, oh, you know, we're the party for the working man. And when you've got sort of AOC running around on a whole bunch of sort of radical left-wing social justice issues that are not appealing to sort of suburban Americans, that language fits with them and they go, oh, oh the Republican Party's my party. Whereas, you know, for the last 100 years, the Democratic Party was their party. It was the party of the working people. And I'm worried right now about this moment because I feel like we're at a tipping point where this could flip um, and working people all of a sudden, like broadly speaking, working people can just start voting Republican as opposed to voting Democrat. And um, I, 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 what are your thoughts about that? I mean, is that something that is a concern within the movement or am I just reading this wrong? No, you're, you're reading it right. I mean, let's look at Ohio, Okay. Ohio voted for Obama 2008 and 12. And then uh, Trump both times in 2016 and 20. Mm. Okay. Of like, and that's your, what we call the Rust Belt, right? Ohio, Pennsylvania, those like areas where steel industries and other factory, factory workers essentially hold up those communities, but like have, again, the economy, those jobs looked a little different. And they felt, well, well, the Democrats didn't get it done. Well, maybe the Republicans can, right? But and they haven't gotten that done either. But but guess what? They are it's not around those working values. They're getting they're hitting another core. Those white men are feeling like make America great again. Mm. What where, 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 where does that come from? Right? Those undertones of like, hey. You've been, you're jobless, right? It's these other people who are doing this to you, right? And th- that sense of ownership kind of comes in um, with, with that me- messaging that can't be touched by um, Democrats right now. Because you're appealing to their core of like, okay, I can't put food on my table right now. I'm pissed off about that or pissed off about something else that's going on. There's these woke companies, right? These woke companies are doing this, da, da, da. This is just not the America I'm in. Yeah. And so that sensationalism and hence why Trump still gets some out damn rallies and shit, right? It's, there's always going to be an audience for that. They became even more bold in there. A lot of racial undertones that, that comes in that messaging that Republicans are doing that, hits their core, quite frankly. Um, and in order for Democrats to like to move that over, what are the tangible things Democrats can say, like, hey, we got that for you? Right? And if Democrats don't have that answer in 2022, they're going to get crushed. And in 2024, they're going to get crushed as well. You can't come up with those tangible things to combat that nonsense that's going to happen from on the other side of like appealing to those that dog whistling of like oh make it make america great again and trump will come up with something new and these 
these other folks will 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 play that up around those racial undertones, whether it's Asian hate or whatever. They're, they'll find a way to rally us versus them, and then make it about, oh, okay, great, this is what we're the we're working values bullshit comes in. Mm. Let's move to the last one, which is broadly speaking, justice. But um, um, I want to include in that sort of policing and 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 gun violence and that sort of whole kit and caboodle. And so much happened uh, last year. Um, with the Black Lives Matter movement um, and, and protests sparking up across the country, which were historic, really. I mean, it's not—it's sort of 1968 all over again. Just yeah. Um, and and, I, and I, just watching it at the time, at the start, it sort of seemed like, oh, this will probably last a week, but it, it, it went on and on and on and on and on. I went, oh, this is profound. Um, what, I, you and I have not spoken about this on air, um, but I know we've talked about it privately the what were your feelings coming out of that summer in terms of um the direction that the country was heading did you come out of that with hope or did you come out of that feeling even more depressed about it as as a person of color that's a good question like for me i came away with hope because you know it's a whole ass pandemic happening and people still in these streets i've never i've saw stuff like little peaks with like Occupy Wall Street of like people just pissed off. But even then the Occupy Wall Street crowd were were a lot of like the activists and young, young folks kind of kind of getting together at um in two thousand nine. I can't remember when that happened. But then um then there little uprises that happened after um like after Mike Brown was killed, Trayvon Martin, this little pocket but the consistent and those sheer amount of volume of new faces wasn't just black folks but like other allies like the conversation that we're, we were having i had never seen anything like that it gave me a lot of hope of people who just were like whoa this is fucked up <laughs> didn't know it was this bad well welcome to the, the world and like f- f- find a way to plug in and, and participate um quite frankly um that it gave me hope um, but now I feel it's, I'm worried about what happens this year. I mean, you can't pass the breathe act, right? You can't pass for the people act of issues that were directly, particularly the breathe act where, even though there's some flaws around that bill, that, but we're directly addressing some of the stuff that caused those uprising, uprising, um, starting to, address some of the systemic problems that we were seeing there. Um, and so I, I'm less hopeful now as about like, okay, can we move this into a direction where people can actually take this on to a new level um, and similar to what we saw in the, the Civil Rights Act? But, you know, it was way, way more people than I saw it. And quite frankly, I felt we missed a moment putting it all on this election. Right, and then now what? Right, you get this, you get these people like, you like get these people elected who were supposed to pass these laws, but the real work begins. Elections, election is just a tactic, right? If you're talking about a movement, you see these elections as one step. The real work, where the big ass rallies are on the for the people act, where on the 
around the breed that on all these other possibilities to addressing these systemic changes, that's where that people power is still untapped. So I am less hopeful because it hasn't happened, but it's a lot of untapped energy right now that just hasn't been, people are amped up and want something to do. And I felt like we haven't given them the correct thing to do yet. Um, and we organizers haven't gotten to a, a space yet of, all right, here's what you do now. Here's how you take back your little corner of your community. Cause DC is going to be bullshit for a minute. Um, your former colleague from Color of Change, uh, the then national uh, field director, but I think she's gone on to bigger and better things. Um, Shannon was on the sh- on the show um, during the Black Lives. Well, maybe it was just after sort of the summer had kind of ended when she had time to breathe um, and have uh, get her head above water for a moment. Because I'm sure she was flat out. Um, but she talked about leading into the elections about running uh, the, the, the Color of Change. Uh, we're running a bunch of campaigns to try and change uh, the types of folks that are getting DA jobs and and all and um, and sort of justice campaigns. And obviously, you were super close to to that before you um, uh, uh, um, moved on to bigger and better things. Give us uh, give us a bit of an overview of the successes and or and and failures of that 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 campaign had leading up to the twenty twenty election. Actually. Um went really well. The district attorney elections that color change pack was taking on at that time um, were in major cities like Los Angeles, uh, Chicago was up. Um, there in, a, in a, some, of course, in, in Florida, Broward County, we, we won in places, got elected progressive young um prosecutors who were immediately have an impact on, on black lives, right in, the, in their own local communities. Um, and, and quite frankly, there was a lot of energy around those DAs, um, then sometimes more than the presidential, because people can feel and taste. And when, once you tell them what the hell a DA does, district attorney does, prosecutor does, like, oh, shit, I can like that person? Like, yes, this is the thing you can do, <laughs> right? To change, like, to make life a bit different dramatically. Um, that, to me, like, I think is, like, the, the next level of, like, because people are, are, quite frankly, especially after 2022, I'm making bold predictions, going to be a shit show, right? Mm-hmm. right? Um, and so what it's, on the federal level, um, I feel you get more bang for the buck in terms of, like, getting people to buy in, particular black folks to buy in on our democracy and at the local level, local office. So that's um, district attorney, that's mayor, that's county commissioner, people that control those budgets. It's like the boring ass positions that won't get the TV time, but will really impact, you know, politics is an allocation of resources. Okay. These are the people that will, literally impact your life. They can literally decide how well, how much funding your school gets, how much do you get a park in this school, in this in this neighborhood, or do you get a trash plant? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. those little things that will impact your quality of life are being decided at the local elections. So getting those folks engaged on local elections and, and get people a taste of what a win looks like um, before going up uh, towards 
um, the bigger offices is, I think, is a strategy and a color change that um, implies and, and ha- it has been successful of like, all right, we got this DA, now we can actually see some criminal justice reform. But it, then again, what's happening, for instance, like Lay Krasner, you know, Lay Krasner, Philadelphia, um, district attorney, he's one person, mm. right, in a state, right, with state laws. Right, so he's capped at like the reform and the the reform that he's able to do, even though he's the king of Philadelphia around criminal justice. But like, no, 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 these judges and these state laws have a different way of going about things. Um, and so, yeah, it's limitations of this of our criminal justice system is being exposed, and also the. Uh, there are a couple of wedges where you can get, go in and, and, and blow some shit up. And that's that's been the fun part of uh, the past couple of years of seeing the, the, the rise of progressive district attorneys. Um, we could talk about uh, this and all these other topics. Well, we didn't even cover education or climate. Um, there's so much <laughs> more we could go into and sports. Um, but uh, we're going to have to leave it there. And I want to end it. I wanted to end it on a reasonably good note there because that was there were some positivities that came out of that campaign that you guys ran for color of change. And I'm um, so impressed with the hard work that you and Shannon and a whole bunch of others put into that election year. I know it wasn't easy, particularly off the back of the the summer that you guys had. Uh, but it was fantastic to see that you had some wins on the board um, in electing some good people and hopefully creating change. Quasi. Wonderful to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you want to plug? I know that we do have some folks in the US that listen to the show. Do you want to plug your uh, your, your, your new venture these days or what you're working on? For sure. Um, it's Chapman Consulting. Um, but if you want to get a hold of me right now, just follow me on Instagram, uh, Um That's the best way to get a hold of me right now. The website's in the works. Um, and yeah, it's... Doing whole political consulting. What the hell is a political consultant? That means I do a lot. <laughs> ah, I still, I still haven't landed. How do I describe what my job is? Don't worry. In fact, my, I was down in um, Warrigal uh, visiting my mum on the weekend, and uh, she was talking to I don't know one of the aunties or something, and they asked, "So what does Stephen do?" And mum was trying to explain to me what she explained to them. <laughs> Even like I just felt for mum because like, mum, I can't help you because I can't explain it either. So you know, you just just make it up, just make it up. It doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, at this point, I'm just like doing that. She got the. He's organizing. I, I think he's organizing something. And I was like, man, that's good enough for me. <laughs> anyway. Sounds right. <laughs> All right, man. Good to see you. Always a pleasure. Thank you.